The news for April 23rd starts off with this story on precautions against plague. The Adelaide Steamship Company's steamer Collier arrived on Sunday from West Australian ports. When she left Fremantle, the plague had not been discovered, but on arrival at Albany, the health officer had the yellow flag hoisted and informed those on board that bubonic plague had broken out at their last port of call. A thorough disinfection had to be carried out before the vessel was allowed to proceed to the wharf. On arrival at Port Adelaide with a clean bill of health, Captain Dingle, ship's husband to the Adelaide Steamship Company, issued instructions for the thorough fumigation of the vessel. The operation was undertaken as a precautionary measure against risk and the acting health officer, Dr Gething, will superintend the raising of the hatches early this morning. This story of disease travelling on cruise ships comes from the advertiser in South Australia. For Monday 23rd April 1900, this was the news. This was The News is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news update. From the black and white pages of decades ago, I'm Broderick Matthews with the news both historical and a little hysterical. Today's news comes from 1900 and on this date, April 23rd, the papers were filled with stories of Australians starting to fight against the bubonic plague which was making its way through the country, as we heard in the opening story. But Australians were also fighting overseas as the Boer War was kicking off again in South Africa. Pieces in the paper covered various stories of soldiers and this piece in the Brisbane Courier stated that recent news from the seat of war in South Africa had been scanty and contradictory and this leads to the belief that important operations are proceeding. Meanwhile, the papers were also dominated with stories around Federation at this time, waiting for Australia to truly become Australia. The Coolgardie miner in Western Australia had this piece sent by telegram from London. In a speech at the press club last evening, Mr Edmund Barton, alluding to Federation, said that when common action was needed, the empire was already won and the motherland ought to refrain from taking a step calculated to render that union less warm and less strong. The colonies, Mr Barton declared, asked Great Britain to respect the votes of Australians upon matters of self-government. By conceding what was now sought under the Commonwealth Bill, the Imperial Government would greatly aid in promoting the prosperity of the Empire. Strong words there from our Prime Minister-to-be. Turning the page to the Brisbane Courier in Queensland now, and it talks about female teachers. A meeting of female assistant teachers was held in the normal school on Friday evening last. It was very well attended, about 60 ladies being present. The meeting was called for the purpose of considering means of improving the remuneration of female assistant teachers. It was resolved to ask the executive of the East Morton Teachers Association to frame a petition to be placed before the minister, praying him for an increase in their salaries, in the same proportion as that recently given to male assistants. And people wonder how we ended up with a gender wage gap. Meanwhile, changing tack a little bit now to a bit of lighter news from the Newcastle Morning Herald and Miners Advocate on photographing a living fish. 
Few subjects present so much difficulty to the photographer anxious to depict them as do living fishes. Quite apart from the impossibility of following them about and snapshotting them when a favourable opportunity presents itself, as is done in the case of birds and wild animals, there is the action of the water in upsetting the quality of the lens to be considered, and the matter of suitable lighting. These things have been struggled with by many ardent naturalists without any great success, but with two exceptions, Dr. Schufelt in America and Mr. Douglas English in this country. The latter, in the current issue of photography, describes his method of working and to show its successes, illustrates his article with photographs of trout, roach, gudgeon, paradise fish, which leave little to be desired. Mr. English is evidently on excellent terms with his sitters. We read that the roach is a philosophical fish who allowed himself to be photographed in an unruffled manner. A paradise fish was secured in the act of rising for a worm held above his head, and a trout was so exhausted that he had to be restored by means of small doses of brandy. That's what they say about drinking like a fish. Let's have a short break for some advertisements now. Try this if troubled with rheumatism. Our little boy was afflicted with rheumatism in his knee and at times unable to put his foot to the floor. We tried in vain everything we could hear of that we thought would help him. We almost gave up in despair when someone advised us to try Chamberlain's Pain Balm. We did so, and the first bottle gave so much relief that we got a second one, and to our surprise it cured him sound and well. For sale by all dealers, price three or one and six. Smoking the Peace Pipe When reading the war news, be sure that you are smoking a pipeful of tobacco purchased at F. Bennett's. It is very soothing. Also remember, this is the place for the best shave, haircut or shampoo in town. F. Bennett's. We continue now with the news of April 23rd, 1900, and the Australian Star in Sydney, New South Wales, reports on the following country news. In Albury, the Premier has promised to dine with the Walla Walla Farmers Union at an early date, and has also stated his intention to introduce a width of tyres bill. Over in Bathurst, Mr F.B. Sutter has informed the Mayor that he had arranged with the Department that the survey office and staff should remain in Bathurst, and the proposed meeting arranged to protest against the anticipated removal was consequently abandoned. In Bombala, the Launceston Examiner has written to the Railway and Federal Capital League inquiring into the qualifications of Bombala as a site for the Federal Capital. Over in Corowa, on Thursday, Mr H. Oten, who had been fishing in company with his brother-in-law, Mr Paul Herbrecht, on a lagoon, was drowned by the sinking of the boat in which they were rowing to shore. Across in Crookwell, stock are looking well, for grass is plentiful and farmers are busy ploughing. Meanwhile in Gadooga, the rivers have a fair body of water and a freshet is expected from Queensland. In Goulburn, the total enrolment in the Technical College last year was 618, and at the distribution of prizes on Thursday, the Mayor expressed the public regret that Goulburn was still without the Technical College building. 
Goodness knows what college they're enrolling in if there's no building there. Meanwhile, in the Janolan Caves, there were a large number of visitors at Easter, and 60 people camped out on the new camping ground, which proved to be very satisfactory. In Liverpool, the District Progress Association has resolved to cooperate with the Municipal Council in its endeavours to abate the nuisances complained of at the Liverpool Asylum. On the coast in Maruya, the first half of the new bridge over the river was opened on Wednesday and proved a great improvement on the old structure. One can only hope they open the second half of the bridge quite soon. Sticking on the coast and in Pambula, there is much annoyance at the delay in the construction of the public wharf outside Marimbula Bar. Meanwhile, in Tungabi, a local rifle club has been formed. An admirably suited range has been selected and an application for its reserve will be made to the government. Finally, in Yass, Mr Oliver is holding an inquiry in connection with the federal city site. So you can see his federation is coming round, multiple sites being considered for hosting our capital. Moving across to South Australia now, and this report from the advertiser there talks about crime and the bicycle. The cyclist has had to suffer many varieties of reproach since first he began to urge on his wild career. Some of them, it must be admitted, he has brought upon himself. Others are due merely to the dislike felt by some people for any change in the established order of things. The earlier riders were often more than a little inconsiderate. With the proverbial ardour of the new convert, they enjoyed their newly acquired powers at the expense of such as came in their way. Pace was too often excessive, and the ringing of a bell was made sufficient herald of a blind rush, the duty of avoiding collision being left to the pedestrian. On the other hand, those who did not ride were at times unnecessarily unsympathetic. Nervous persons imagined that they had been wantonly exposed to peril if a bicycle passed within six feet of them, not adequately realising either the rider's power of steering or his personal dislike to a collision. Harassing restrictions were enacted and enforced somewhat capriciously. Recent news from one of the chief cities of New Zealand recalled the time when in Adelaide every cyclist was bidden to carry a bell that would sound continuously. There, as here, cowbells and other monstrosities were introduced in petulant obedience to the bylaw. There, as here, it was soon realised that the continuous sound, besides being a nuisance, defeats its own object, and that the bell is more useful when kept for service as an occasional warning. Cyclists have become more skilful nowadays, though. The crowd of novices a few years back have passed from the streets, having become either expert or dropped out on the ranks. Simultaneously, the public have become used to the new order of things. In almost every household, there is at least one cyclist, and increased knowledge has brought toleration. Toleration of cyclists. Back in the 1900s, surely that's something that continues to be realised today. Hmm. The article continues. It seems hard to realise that in 1895 an English clergyman could write to the daily papers in indignation against riders who sought shelter from the wind behind his carriage and recommending for general adoption of his own plan in such cases, the method of this gentle Christian being to draw the cyclist into high speed and then stop suddenly so that the front wheel of the machine should be smashed against the back of the carriage. 1895, accidents between bikes and carriages. 
again, surely wouldn't continue into the modern day. Drivers getting frustrated with cyclists behind them? No, not at all. The article takes a bit of a turn here and continues for a good while, outlining how the new bicycle is causing more crime. Not only through its use, but the desire for the vehicle, forcing people to rob and thief to get what they want. The article does wrap up, though, by stating the following. In Australia, the machine is now regarded as simply a natural and convenient vehicle for locomotion. Burglars make use of it, no doubt, but so do Sunday school teachers. Cycling stimulates exercise without producing exhaustion. It makes for health and thereby diminishes the causes of crime. It is the finest of all remedies for a tendency to excessive use of alcohol. For one evil which the bicycle now provokes, it will yield us a hundred benefits in time to come. So there you go folks, ride a bicycle. It's the vehicle with benefits. Let's take a short break. Don't punish the child. Did you ever note that 40% of the children of the whole world have weak kidneys? Mothers know it, and there is a mistaken policy of saying nothing about it. Sweet, clean, dry beds should be and can be the resting place by night of our little ones. Some mothers attribute it to habit. It is not habit at all. Why are these children who have this habit thirsty at bedtime? Let us tell you. Weak kidneys become inflamed by the daily activity of the child and demand something cooling. The result is the same whether they drink or not. Give such children one Dern's backache kidney pill twice a day. As sure as you do this, their kidneys become strengthened and sweet rooms and beds and undisturbed studies at school will be the result. Their weakened kidneys are nearly always the result of some form of sickness and can be easily cured as any other childish ailment. Mrs M.C. Hamilton, Beckman Street, West Maitland, says... My little boy, 10 years of age, has always been troubled with weakness of the kidneys. Many mothers punish their children for this, but I know my boy couldn't help it. I read about Doan's backache kidney pills curing incontinence of urine in adults and thought, hmm, they might help the little fellow. I procured a box and their use produced a marked effect at once. I continued giving him these pills until he was completely cured. It is only out of gratitude that I give this testimonial for publication and because this trouble is a prevalent one and it is rarely spoken about. Physicians do not appear to be able to cope with this evil and I consider it a mother's duty to tell others when she discovers a specific for this annoyance. Don's backache pills always cure such cases as above. It is important to get the same medicine which Mrs Hamilton gave her little boy. Therefore, ask for Doan's backache pills. They're sold by all chemists and storekeepers or will be posted on receipt of price by the proprietors, Foster McClellan & Co. Be sure to ask for Doan's. Coming towards the end of the news now for April 23rd, 1900, and we have this piece about our youth published in the Brisbane Courier. 
The question of laying hold of our youth at the time of their leaving school and occupying their spare hours to better purpose has been seriously taken up by the Reverend G. Saorini of Greenwich. Mr. Rini points out that the average boy does not take kindly to the attempts of board schools and philanthropic and religious institutions to provide for him in the evening, and that he prefers the attractions and the education of the streets. Let these boys alone and thousands will grow into Aries, the butt of cheap wit, or into hooligans, the perplexity of the police and the nuisance of the cities and the poor. Instead, the Reverend says, as the article continues, they should take a leap from the church and their boys' brigade, which treat the young men like soldiers. The article continues on, talking about the boys' brigade. Amazing and preposterous illusion. Call these boys, boys which they are, and ask them to sit up in a Sunday class, and no power on earth will make them do it. But put a five-penny cap on them and call them soldiers, which they are not, and you can order them about till midnight, the genius who discovered this astounding and inexplicable psychological fact ought to rank with Sir Isaac Newton. Talk what can be got out of coal tar and waste paper. Why, you take your boy, your troglodyte, your Arab, your gammon on this principle, and there is no limit to what you can extract from him or do with him. Look at this quondam class, which is tonight a company. As class it was confusion, depression, demoralisation, chaos. As company, it is respect, self-respect, enthusiasm, happiness, peace. The beauty of the change is that it is spontaneous, secured without heartburn, maintained without compulsion. The boy's own nature rises to it with a bound, and the livelier the specimen, the greater its hold upon him. Why should not that be done for the nation, which is being so successfully done for the church? Right, talking about bringing the boys into drill, giving them some order when they leave school early. Speaking of soldiers, I've got a final story from the Boer War here. And with Anzac Day approaching now, even though it wasn't there in 1900, I thought it appropriate to finish on that. This piece is entitled Soldiers as Vegetarians and comes from the Coolgardie Minor in WA. There are sundry interesting titbits in the latest mail letter from Mr Bennett Burley, the Daily Telegraph special with Buller's Force. An officer in the Army Service Corps, who was called from urgent duties by a brother officer, was asked, Out of one of my companies of a hundred men, there are nineteen vegetarians. Now what do you recommend I should give them in lieu of the extra beef ration? There are no substitutes I can issue, replied the Army Service man. "'Then what am I to do with these men?' demanded the officer. "'Well,' answered the other, "'I suggest that, as the next best thing to be done, "'you turn them out to graze.' "'Whether he did, nobody knows, "'or whether they are consuming the living, "'wild, succulent plants of Natal, no one cares. "'But from the haggard aspect of the martyrs,' says Burley, "'I imagine they have backslided upon bully beef and coarse biscuits.' "'Of course. "'Who could remain a vegetarian back in the war in 1900?' Let's hope you weren't uh, trying to get a gluten-free meal too. And we close the paper as we come to the end of today's bulletin. For April 23rd, 1900, this was the news.
This Was the News is a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of these articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday 7 May. I'm Broderick Matthews and this was The News.